welcome back to another episode of Oral Max Facts. This is Maria McFarry and Riddhi Patel, your Oral Max Facts hosts. We thank you for listening to our podcast, Oral Max Facts. For any of you tuning in for the first time, you're in for an evidence-based learning and the most comprehensive review of key topics in oral and maxillofacial surgery. So today we are bringing a very interesting topic, one that has riddled and entertained surgeons for many years. Ladies and gentlemen, we are, drumroll please, <laughs> we are going to talk about management of unilateral mandibular condyle fracture in adults. We really try to concise the topic when it comes to condyle fracture to be able to give you guys some insight into it. Yeah, you know what? I'm really excited about this topic because it is something that has riddled surgeons for so many years. And I think it's finally time we actually talk about it. You know, it's been published over and over again. Even after all that, when a condylar fracture presents to you, it's puzzling. Should you open it? Should you close it? What should you do? You know? So those are some of the things we will be going into detail here. Exactly. This episode is part of our ACOMS CE episodes. So you guys answer a few questions at the end of the episodes associated with this lecture and you can get a CE credit. And we are also thankful to Dr. Ed Ellis for reviewing this talk for us. So thank you, Dr. Ellis. Thank you very much. Yes, we are very excited that he had a chance to take a look at what we are presenting to you guys in order to make sure that we are delivering and not only an evidence base, but also an expert opinion in the field for you guys. All right, so we're going to be presenting a lot of information today, and it could be very easy to drift away and miss a thing or two. So if you want to get the most out of this talk, we recommend that you listen to it twice or break it into multiple sessions. And as always, we'll provide a few key summary points at the end for your convenience. So to set some points about today's lecture, we're going to review the new nomenclature of condyle fracture for new CT imaging findings and kind of review the current literature. So let's start with reviewing an etiology of condyle fracture before diving into the new language associated with condyle fracture. As you already know, condylar anatomy is divided into intracapsular, subcondyle level, and condyle neck. Mandible condyle fracture is most frequent fracture site competing with the body of the mandible. Obviously, depending on what literature you read and what methodology you follow, you kind of get different stats. But somewhere between 30% of all mandible fractures are typically in condyle. And over 80% of the condyle fractures are unilateral, mostly due to sport injury, falls, interpersonal violence, or traffic accidents. Similar to the physics of all fracture, it is always about the force and the direction. So really, if you were ever gonna get into a fight, and <laughs> which I don't know why we would we could fight about, but if if you were going to hit me on the right side of my mandible, where do you think you're gonna break my jaw? Well, Miriam, I'm not sure why I would hit you, but sure, if I was to hit you, the force of direction is horizontally directed and more or less perpendicular to mandibular body. 
and this may result in a fracture on right body and possibly left condylar region. That almost rhymed, and it was intentional. <laughs> so, point well made. Condylar fractures are commonly encountered during blunt trauma, such as direct trauma to chin or direct force to the body of the manible. And why did we decide that is on the left condyle? That's a very good question. The posterior movement of mandible is limited by the glenoid fossa, the TMJ capsule, and the lateral pterygoid muscles. And once the overall force overcomes the strength of the condylar region, then bam, you have a fracture of the condylar region. So this is kind of a pro tip, and an astute resident or surgeon may also notice fracturing of teeth or tooth supporting structures in the anterior region that exists to the same extent on both the fractured and the non-fractured side. However, when you have a fractured bicuspids and molars, these are more likely to be on the condylar fracture side. Another thing that we want to highlight is that injury to teeth could also mean that patients have had a more complex trauma, such as a traffic accident, assault with the repeated blows or kick. So, so really, do you think the position of the jaw impacts the kind of condyle fracture that we're going to have? So I look at the literature for this, and that is actually a really good question. The open mouth position predisposes the condyle to a higher probability of trauma. And there you have it. Open versus closed jaw position does indeed have an impact on the severity of condylar fracture. A word of advice, friends. Next time you decide to get into a bar fight, Remember to keep your mouth closed. <laughs> We're really into fighting today, now, huh? <laughs> How can he talk about condylar fracture and not talk about bar fights? <laughs> exactly. That's that's exactly where the no no that's not where the fights happens though. It often happens by somebody they don't know who it is when they were walking just in the street. Oh yes, I was minding my own business, of course. <laughs> Okay, so is there a relationship between the dentition status and the severity of the fracture? So the short answer is no. All kind of condylar fracture can occur independent of occlusion. So when a patient falls on chin or gets a direct hit to the chin, the most common resulting pattern is, as we all know, bilateral condylar fracture as well as symphysial fracture. However, the degree of occlusion has not shown to lessen the degree of fracture. So what you're saying really, it doesn't mean if we have like a less teeth or not, not having molar occlusion, it doesn't affect how bad the fracture is. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess people also tend to get condylar fracture without having any teeth. That's true. So let's just talk about, again, the, the physiology of this fracture. If the medial fragment in the condyle head fracture undergoes a displacement, it follows, almost without an exception, a stereotypical pathway. There will be a vector of lateral pterygoid muscle that pulls the condylar head out of the glenoid fossa and into an anterior medial position. When the medial fragment has been displaced from its original position in glenoid fossa, Condylar head fracture is called a dislocated fracture. 
And it's not just the action of lateral pterygoid that plays a major role in typical presentation associated with condylar fracture. It is also the cumulative effect of masseter, medial pterygoid, and temporalis that also pull the distal ramus in the superior position, and it tends to decrease the length of ramus and therefore the posterior vertical facial height. When it comes to diagnosing the condyle fracture, the frequent buzzwords we see in our exams is deviation to the site of a fracture or limiting of opening, posterior open bite on the contralateral side, and premature occlusion on the ipsilateral side. But as we all know, these findings aren't pathonomic, and a lot of times patients mainly complain of Maybe a little bit of a limited mouth opening, but mainly preauricular pain. So we have to be very cautious of examining these patients uh, when they come a day or two later in our private practice or in a clinical setting where they necessarily didn't go to the ED first after what they thought was a minor fight. And, you know, we may not be uh, picking that kind of fracture up if we are just relying on the symptoms of deviation on opening. Correct. I actually hadn't appreciated the importance of these subtle symptoms because, you know, we're often spoiled by CT scans done from ED and we just tend to look at the scans first before we even see the patient. But, you know, as you see your patients in private practice, a lot of times you may not have access to the CT and you may have to rely on these signs first and keep a high suspicion for condylar fracture. Exactly. So let's finally dive into this very exciting and really not mind-numbing topic of classification. (laughs) (laughs) And you're being totally sarcastic, right? (laughs) Yep. Yes, I am. I'm a nerd, but I do not get classification system that exciting topic. You know, I'm a queen of classification system. And even then, the classification of fracture is something that still puzzles me. Yeah, they're supposed to help us simplify the treatment process, but when it comes to condor fracture, there are just too many options out there. Is there a classification system that helps surgeons to actually treatment plan for condor fracture reading? You know, that's such a good question, and I'm not really sure if there's a good answer to it. So the classification and management of condylar fracture is perhaps one of the most controversial topics in facial fractures. There are many classification systems, and honestly, I'm not sure if there's any consensus among experts as to which one will help a surgeon decide whether a factor needs to be treated and what treatment modality needs to be carried out, meaning does it need an open reduction or closed reduction. Also, having had many different classification systems, it's hard for studies to compare results between different studies, I mean, between different treatments. Yeah, and that's partially because of the anatomic complexity of the condyle, the extensive muscle and ligament attachment that contributes to the TMJ. And there has been many classifications out there, but many of them were prior to CT imaging. So now that we have the CT imaging, new classification coming out based on the CT imaging. You know, that's a really good point because a lot of stuff that we still continue to practice and learn is based on old imaging techniques, which we don't really use anymore. Yeah. But one of the recent development in thinking about condyle fracture is because of looking at this fracture 
with the slices of the CT imaging and has changed our perspective of condor head fracture. So as you remember, the condor head fractures are often classified as either extracapsular or intracapsular. I'm not alone in this, right, Ridi? You remember this being taught in dental school? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in residency. <laughs> and so, but when we look at the literature that's no longer valid, and we should erase it from our memory land. Can you elaborate on that, Miriam? Well, as I mentioned, because of this new imaging technique, we now know that the fracture through the condor head always, almost always encroach an extracapsular bony portion on the medial side, meaning that all condyle fracture lines go through the capsule. So there is no extracapsular and intracapsular according to the new studies. Mm -hmm. So the new proper term is dicapsular fracture. I'm not even sure Mary, if a lot of us have heard of that term before. Exactly, and that is one of the points I really want to drive home to our listener today, especially the young researchers who want to study condor fracture, because we no longer talk about it as extracapsular and intracapsular, according to these new studies. And you guys can follow us on Instagram to get the reference for this paper. We're going to make a post about it. Absolutely. You know, there's also another point of confusion in the literature with terminology, and that is displacement versus dislocation. And we want to clear the air out on this one as well. So it's confusing because many of the condylar fracture literature is from Germany. And in Germany, these terms are used for different movements than it is in English classification system. And therefore it is important to note the difference as we read the latest literature. So in our English classification terms, malposition of condylar process fractures are referred to as deviation, displacement, and dislocation. So let's look into this in a little bit more detail, okay? Deviation describes just a deviation of the proximal fragment, while the shifted fragments are still more or less in contact. Displacement, for which the German term is dislocation, means that there is a loss of contact of fractured fragments where the condyle to fossa relationship remains basically intact. Whereas dislocation in English term describes the extra articulation of the condyle bearing fragment out of the fossa, for which the German term is luxation. So Germans call dislocation a luxation, which is kind of downplaying it. Don't you think so? I think so. I mean, luxation, you don't think is out of the condyle fossa. And so I kind of like the English terminology on this one, I have to say. I guess it's kind of luxating teeth. They're out of the socket. <laughs> uh, the dentist in us. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's true. So displacement refers to a fracture line status, while dislocation refers to the luxation grade of the condyle head. And for the clinician, this classification regarding malposition of condyle head is of utmost importance for decision-making regarding non-surgical versus surgical therapy of condyle process fracture. In the era before CT, we mentioned the classifications were purely based on the x-ray. They weren't calibrated for the head and neck. 
So many of those classifications don't really apply to today's day and age. Believe it or not, CT scan has its own limitations as well for being used as the sole way of classifying condylar fractures. The 3D reconstructions are not as accurate as we think they are in measuring loss of vertical ray mass height. And using the CT sagittal cut for assessing the vertical loss of height is dependent only on a selected slice. Yeah, and then how, how are we going to go about you know, standardizing which slides we're going to look at in order to measure vertical loss of height? You know, that's in its own opens a new can of worms that makes this topic of condyle fracture classification to be a puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the classification systems that we could agree on? The three trend-setting classifications these days are Spiesel and Stroll classification and the SORC classification. What does the SORC classification stand for? It's a Stress Broke Osteocentesis Research Group. If you want to know more about these classification systems, please check out our Insta post. As you know, a photo is better than a thousand words. Exactly. Okay, so enough about classifications. I want everyone who chooses to sleep through this part to wake up in order to get to the fun part, which is managing and kind of looking at outcome goals when it comes to managing our patients with the condyle fracture. So there are three different treatment options when it comes to condyle fracture. There is open reduction, closed treatment, or just observing it. And the management of condyle fracture is so controversial that in a recent panel discussion on AOCMF on management of condyle fracture, the experts from all over the world were presented with three cases and asked how would they manage it. And it was no surprise that different surgeons had different ways of treating the same case, whether or not it came to be open treatment or closed treatment or just observing it. Yeah, you know, that talk was actually really interesting. And if you have access to AOCMF, I would highly encourage you to go and watch it. Oh, interesting. I didn't know you could access the previous talk. Oh, yeah, they have all the talks on there, but it's a paid membership. The delicacy of treating condylar fracture is due to its intimate relationship with our favorite joint in the face, which is TMJ. So some of these problems are unique to condylar fracture, and some of the other factors that contribute to treatment choice would be malocclusion, internal derangement of joints, ankylosis, and reduced mandibular growth. So patients should be informed about these developing symptoms such as long-term pain, limitation in movement and function of jaw, growth asymmetry, and malocclusion. Despite all this controversy, I think one thing we can all agree on that we want to take our patients to a place that they have pain-free mouth opening back to their baseline of maximum opening, which a lot of people refer to as 40 to 50 millimeter. Having good movements of jaw in all exertions and going back to the pre-injury occlusion, having a stable TMJ and restoring the posterior facial height and jaw symmetry. Yeah, so those were actually five really good points precisely what our treatment goals are with any condylar fractures. So what are the driving factors for treatment? So some of the things that we look at are, of course, the age of the patient, right? The younger patient doesn't get the same treatment as the older patient. What are the other injuries to the face or even to other parts of the body? 
what are the dental and medical history, what's the current um, dental treatment, are they in braces? That would make a difference, right? The position of the fracture and the pathogenesis and the severity of the injury, all of these things will influence the treatment of the condylar fracture. Yes. And given the lot of studies that have been done after Zaid and Ken in regarding to their absolute and relative indications. <laughs> the infamous Zaid and Ken indications and contraindications to treatment of condylar fracture. It just keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, And it's funny because I mean, Dr. Ellis actually reviewed this talk and he was like, can you just erase that part? We don't need to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no, he really did say that. Instead of looking at it that way, we are going to look at the treatment options and look at the indications for each of those treatment options based on the current literature. Why don't we first start with close treatment? Let's do it. And for the accuracy purpose, please note that we said close treatment and not close reduction. Simply because in a close treatment, a reduction doesn't necessarily happen. Non-surgical management of a condyle fracture in adult has its foundation on managing the pediatric condyle fracture with close treatment. Studies have shown that the mandibular condyle in children healed and restored themselves by remodeling of bone to reasonable anatomic morphology and function. But really, what are the indications to do a close treatment versus open treatment? You know, I wish I had a black and white answer for this, but I'm really going to try my best here, okay? So open versus closed treatment is a topic of discussion among many experts, but the few indications that the majority of experts agree on for non-surgical treatment are, one, ideally children younger than 12 years of age with condylar neck fractures before the growth is complete. The research on propensity of children's ability to remodel the bone after a condylar fracture was performed by Dr. Walker back in the 60s, and it's been restudied with long-term follow-up by Dr. Thora and colleague as well. Any high condylar neck fractures without dislocation, and dislocation was when the condyle is out of the fossa, as we discussed earlier. According to American literature, English language. <laughs> <laughs> yep. What's the third indication? Condylar head fractures without the loss of ramus height. Okay, and the fourth one is if the patient is not a good surgical candidate from a medical standpoint. Which is always a good indication not to do surgery. We read a lot of literature for the preparation for this talk, for the condylar fracture, and some of them were really good, and I really want to take a deep dive with you guys about one of this literature that we read. And that was Dr. Walker's. Dr. Walker, a professor of oral maxillofacial surgery at University of Texas, Southwestern Medical School, and is also known as one of the legends in our field, did a published a study in 1960. The title of this article is Traumatic Mandibular Condyle Fracture Dislocation, Effect on Growth in Rhesus Monkey. In this study, a cut was made in the condyle of nine young rhesus monkey extending slightly inferior from the depth of the sigmoid notch to the posterior border of the mandible. In other words, the cut has created a condyle neck fracture. 
Then, an sterile blade punch was used to forcibly dislocate the condyle in a medial and anterior direction with the cut surfaces of bone coming to rest at the right angle to each other. So really trying to displace that condyle. The treatment was divided into two groups. One open and the other one was a closed treatment. Afterward, uh, the, in animals distant to closed treatment, condyles were left in their fractured position, which was very displaced, and another group of animals were treated surgically by anatomic reduction of condyles secured with number 28 stainless wire. The animals were then maintained for 16 to 20 months after surgery. Then they were compared immediately postoperatively with an AP radiograph after the sacrifices, as well as comparing the operative versus non-operative condyle on the growth manable after sacrifice. The most striking result for Dr. Walker was, and I quote, the propensity of rhesus monkey to form a workable, usable mandibular articulation following such trauma, regardless of whether the condyle was left at right angle to the ramus pushed in a medial and anterior direction, or reduced and maintained in anatomic position, each mandible had formed a remarkably morphologically identifiable condyle in an upright position. But it's important to clarify, though, that Dr. Walker did not mean that each animal functioned in a precise and perfect condyle without interruption in the growth of ramus and body. Exactly. And of course, there's a lot of outcomes that are missing from this study, such as the pain and how uncomfortable they were with their new occlusion. Nonetheless, this study, along with other studies, led Dr. Walker to publish a follow-up study 34 years later on the condyle fractures and non-surgical management. So in this piece, Dr. Walker set the same five goals as we mentioned earlier about adequately restoring the function of the jaw after a condyle fracture. In this article, he shares with us that the intermittent maxillomandibular elastic traction using two to three elastics on arch bars helps with jaw rehabilitation by holding the teeth and the jaw in their correct position. So what he recommended was to use elastic therapy at night and then remove it during the daytime for a minimum of three months. And one thing he emphasized in this article is that the non-surgical management of fractured mandibular condyle does not mean wiring the teeth in occlusion for an extended period of time. Most importantly, Dr. Walker alludes to the reasons for open surgery of mandibular condyles as he references Dr. Kent and Dr. Said. And this is actually very interesting because among uh, my current attendings, they treat condyle fracture differently even when it comes to the close treatment. One of our attendings follows Dr. Walker's findings, which is putting them in elastic at nights, having them remove it and be fully functional during the day, and kind of letting themselves to kind of rehabilitate. But then some others are really adamant about doing an MMF with stainless wire for two weeks and then putting them on elastics. So I really want to hear your thoughts by commenting us or sending us a message on on Oral Max Facts Insta page, how do you guys go about close treatment of your condyle fracture and what literature backs up your treatment plan? 
I think for me, it really just comes down to how is patient functioning. You know, if I can get them into occlusion by just doing elastics, I think that would be a good treatment choice. Um, sometimes I would also consider doing just a short-term close reduction just for two weeks and then putting elastics on. Yeah, that's a good point. What kind of uh, malocclusion they, they present with is definitely could be a way of kind of going about uh, figuring out the how tight you want those MMF to be, elastic versus wire shut. Later on, Dr. Ellis built on Dr. Walker's approach in his article titled Treatment of Mandibular Condyle Process Fractures Biological Considerations. In this article, he highlights that the ability of maxillomandibular fixation to help promote osseous union has never been substantiated in the literature. This article meticulously explains the biological basis of condor process healing abilities. And I really recommend for my nerd clubs out there to read this article cover to cover. Dr. Ellis concludes that it is rare to see non-union after condyl process fracture, even in patients who don't undergo a period of maxillomandibular fixation. However, if maxillomandibular fixation is being used for osseous union, then five to six weeks would be needed, similar to other fractures of the mandible. So basically what he was arguing in his article is that, you know, this idea of putting them in two weeks and thinking that we're getting something out of it is not necessarily biologically sound. And he's arguing that literature doesn't back up a non-union of condyle fracture, even if patients don't undergo maxillomandibular fixation, from the standpoint that this particular portion of mandible works the best under function, and it has to function for its, for its health. Yeah. But obviously, that duration of MMF comes with its own limitation of the risk of ankylosis, as we know, which he also recognizes in his paper. And also, studies have shown over and over again that mandibular hypermobility is directly related to the duration of MMF after a condylar fracture. Exactly. As similar to Dr. Walker, Dr. Ellis concludes in his paper that there is no compelling reason to use MMF when treating fractures of condyle process by closed technique. And again, we have to highlight um, that this MMF in particular refers to locking down the jaws using stainless wire. So just to simplify and summarize the concepts so far, unless patients have one of the absolute indications for open surgery, we should treat it with close treatment with arch bars and elastics for functional rehabilitation, soft diet, as well as with close monitoring. So when it comes to functional rehabilitation, we also need to set a goal. What are we trying to achieve? Ridi, can you tell us more about our approach when it comes to functional rehabilitation? Yeah, sure. So most people argue that a successful functional therapy would help achieve an MIO of 40 millimeters, lateral excursion of 10 millimeters, protrusive excursion of 12 millimeters, and a functional TMJ movement. Whether these can be achieved or not in a patient depends on many things, because not all of us walk around with an MIO of 40 millimeters, because some may be wider and others may not be. 
have patient functioning pain-free without major compromises, I think is a more reasonable goal. So how is this done? So using elastic as traction intermittently each night, followed by release in the morning for full daytime use, usually helps with stretching of soft tissue. Another simple method that most patients can exercise at home is to use the tongue blades to help increase your interincisal opening. Patient can gradually increase the number of tongue blades placed between the upper and lower molar and premolar teeth until their desired opening is achieved. And they can also be taped together and be used four to five times per day for about three months. Another expensive option would be a TheraBite appliance, which can be an excellent means of providing physical therapy at home. But obviously, most insurance companies will not cover it. Yeah, and the tongue blade really suffice this physical therapy of the jaw at home with a lot of patient education and endorsing it so they, they know what to do when they're at home. Yep. So, are you convinced or not yet? Well, let's look at the literature to find some solid evidence supporting cultural treatment of unilateral mandibular condylar fractures in adult patients. Okay, so we reviewed the evidence and foundation for closed treatments, and a lot of us out there comfortable doing a closed treatment and seeing a very good result. But when do we have to open a condyle fracture is based on one of the studies that was published in 1998. In 1998, Yost and Kleinheinz performed a prospective study of 122 adult patients with detailed recording of what type of condom fracture and treatment outcome they had. And they had a total of 130 condom fractures. So some of their patients were bilateral condom fracture patients. This study uses basal and shrewd classification. They included patients who had a low condom fracture with displacement or a low condom neck fracture with dislocation. So let's review this one more time, the difference between displacement and dislocation. Displacement refers to a fracture line status, while dislocation refers to the luxation grade of the chondral head. In this study, the low chondral neck fracture was defined as a fracture with the fracture line extending into the sigmoid notch. The authors let the patient decide if they wanted a closed or open treatment. The non-surgical treatment in this study was immediate intermaxillary fixation with functional treatment. The MMF in this study was established by using mini hooks and interocclusal elastics for just 10 days. And then, additionally, they used an acrylic splint on the upper jaw with hypomochloian at the fracture site for distraction of the fragments. And then they did a functional treatment for six months after the release of MMF. All the surgical cases were treated with retromandibular approach. Wait a minute. Hypobochlean? What is that? I don't know. I might have mispronounced it, but it's, I had to look it up myself. So hypo meaning small and moclos means a lever. So basically, hypobochlean is used to distract the posterior mandible downwards and elastics to rotate the mandible upward interiorly. Basically, the idea is that with posterior distraction, the condylar fragment gets released and may get a better alignment in the fossa. 
if anybody uses this out there still please i just want to know who you are and just want to shake your hand because i have not seen that so far in my training <laughs> anyway let's go back to the study they performed the interval clinical exams at 10 days six weeks three six and 12 months after each treatment and they obtained ct at three weeks and 12 months after the treatment according to their assessment analyzing the ct and ultrasound evaluation of tmj they found no significant difference in the treatment outcome so in this study the authors also asked a question of how strong is the tendency for the straightening of a tilted fragment in the case of non-surgical treatment and how strong is the vertical regenerative power of a shortened fragment in the case of non-surgical treatment well their mathematical predictions showed that six degrees of angulation can result and four millimeters of height can be regained. However, angles greater than 37 degrees have little remodeling and can lead to clinical problems. That is a key finding in this study that tilt the dynamic of closed versus open treatment. So what do we conclude when we are dealing with a basal and shoal fracture type 2 and 4? Again, refer to our oral max facts insta page for the imaging. Longitudinal displacement and contraction over 4 millimeter, as well as dislocation of greater than 37 degrees, you have an indication for surgical treatment in your hand. All right. So enough of this closed reduction, let's talk about when are we going to open this? Yes, please. Although we know a lot of us are hesitant to open condyle fracture due to all the risks associated with it. Right, the facial nerve injury and additional time that adds to the case. And mind you, I actually had a case where I did bilateral condylar fracture open reduction and the patient came back with both the plates fractured. So the complications associated down the road. Wow. Well, what was your patient chewing on? Walnut shell? post up. <laughs> we said soft diet, sir. Soft diet. <laughs> that was not fun. <laughs> okay, so, really, can you tell us Dr. Ellis had a study on this, and I really enjoyed reading this, but can you tell us about Dr. Ellis' study of changing the condyle head position when we do treat these fractures with closed treatment? So there was this assumption that when we treat the condyle fracture with closed treatment, there is no change in the degree of displacement. So Dr. Ellis and colleagues investigated this theory by looking at 65 patients who underwent closed treatment of unilateral condylar fracture. The position of the condyle was evaluated using Towns and panoramic radiographs at three different intervals. One was before treatment, one was immediately after placement of arch bars, and then at six weeks. So although it's a small cohort study, what they noticed was that the condylar process position changed in kernel position which was statistically significant before and immediately after the placement of arch bars. In some cases, changes in condylar position due to MMF placement led the patient to meet the criteria for open treatment, 
Similarly, for immediately after placement of arch bars to six weeks, there was a great variability in the position of condylar process, but the overall change was not statistically significant. Yeah, so it's just doing a close treatment is also not so benign, and we could really change what we are dealing with just from all those pulling and apical pulls and rotations. Dr. Ellis really just shifts the way we look at the condylar fracture by reminding us that more important question in condylar fracture treatment planning is to determine which condyle does not require open treatment. And the answer to this question, he looks for clinical findings that can help guide a surgeon's decision. So he retrospectively looked at 332 patients with unilateral, quote, unquote, extracapsular, we know that's not a real thing anymore, but back in the day was, condylar fracture to answer this question. After closing the non-condylar mobile fractures with open reduction and internal fixation, they removed the MMF and mandible was opened and closed a few times. Many of the mandibles may not occlude properly at this point. So how do you think the mandible wants to position? Most likely it wants to fall back and laterally toward the side of the chondral process fracture, posteriorly and laterally toward the side of the chondral process fracture. And this creates a mal occlusion that Dr. Ellis specifically calls it drop back. Hmm. So what is a non-dropback, Miriam? A non-dropback is when mandible can be reduced properly after rotating it closed or those that regain the midline position and don't deviate towards the side of the fracture after applying a moderate digital posterior force to the anterior mandible. And only patients with non-dropback were included in the study. So the patients that were in the non-dropback group were treated with close treatment. And in this study, the close treatment was no maxillomandibular fixation. Instead, patients in the close treatment group were instructed to perform jaw mobility exercises and wear occlusal guidance with elastics if necessary. This occlusal guidance consists of one, uno, class two elastic placed between maxillary and mandibular arch bars on the side of the fracture. And in all but one patient in the non-dropback group had successful treatment outcomes, which was defined as similar to those goals we mentioned earlier, opening greater than 40 millimeter, full TMJ range of motion without symptoms, and adequate occlusion. So, to be or not to be is not the question. The question is, to open or not to open. So far, we have reviewed some of the evidence behind current indication for close treatment of the condylar fracture. So how long do you want to follow up your patients after close treatment in order to ensure success? Again, a great question. As opposed to discharge them if they're healed and functioning okay, usually about six months. What do you do? Well, I, I look at literature. <laughs> The residency that you're going to leave shortly. <laughs> and Dr. Manazan will be stuck with these patients. 
<laughs> exactly. Someone else will be dealing with my complications of open treatment. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, when we look at orthopedic literature, uh, treating a joint with close treatment really requires 10 to 15 years of follow-up to assess for the possible complications such as joint pain or malocclusion due to possible condylar resorption or modifications. These are really late complications and we really have to follow them up for a very long time to call it a success. Right, but that is not a realistic timeline. Nope, it is not. I'd be, gr- I'd be retired by then. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know where you're working. I'll come join you. <laughs> All right. So that was a really good comprehensive review of close treatment, its indication, and considerations after. Enough with close treatment. Let's shift gears and talk about the evidence supporting open treatment of condylar fractures. Okay. Okay, guys. I think we gave you guys plenty of literature to go relook or look up and check out our Instagram page for all the classification pictures we're going to put up there for your quick resources. And uh, stay tuned for our next episode on evidence behind open treatment of chondral fractures. Yep, I think I've had enough for a day. I'm going to go get some ice cream now. Ice cream is great. What What is your favorite ice cream? Hmm, can never go wrong with chocolate or salted caramel. Salted caramel, I agree. I typically, my second taste is coffee or strawberry. All right, let's go get some ice cream now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, see you guys later. Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.